for next week, I uh, just wanted to mention a, a word. Uh, it's our Vision Sunday, and you actually got an insert in your bulletins about part of what we're going to be focusing on. I just mentioned that to say, be on time next week. Like, we want to, it started at 10, and there's going to be uh, really critical info shared from the very get-go. So I want to encourage all of us to make a bit of an extra effort to be here on time. Can I get an amen? I'm not picking on anybody. I'm just saying, okay? Just make an effort next Sunday, right at 9, for those of you that come at 9. What's so funny? What? Yes, you clap. You all clapping for that? And then also at 11 o'clock. No, in all seriousness, we uh, think it's going to be a critical Sunday as we spend a time discerning and sensing what God is calling us to do as a church. And so please be here on time. Um, first Sunday in, uh, in January, um, or first week, I should say, most of you know, I took some time off to be away and... Uh, uh, I was feeling a lot of exhaustion, a lot of fatigue. Uh, just to be honest, I'm still feeling very tired, very exhausted. Um, although I don't want to complain because complain and my wife, my wife says, you had four or five days by yourself in Southern California. What are you complaining about? And she's absolutely right. She's absolutely right. Four or five days to decompress, to rest, so on and so forth. Uh, I got out there because a friend of mine, a pastor uh, in the covenant, Called him up and said, hey, I'm flying out. I want to spend some time. Can I stay with you guys? He has four little kids and has a big house. And he's like, sure, it's totally fine. And then texted back. He's like, what are you coming out here for? I said, well, you know your extremely introverted friend, pastor. I need some time alone to be in silent solitude. And he texts back and he's like, oh, really? Well, in that case, you could stay at one of my guest houses. I was like, guest houses? <laughs> wow. Okay, well, I will take one of your guest houses then. Along the beach? Yes, thank you very much. So, went and stayed at this guest house of his in Newport Beach. Very nice. Very, very nice. While I was there on the second day, his father passed away. I knew that it might happen because before I went out, he said, Peter, his father had been sick for two years. You know, my dad's uh, in the hospital. Well, he's at home in hospice care. So it could be any minute. Second day. Um, and I'll come back to that. That's a couple days out there was somewhat rough. Then I come back. And the following Tuesday or Wednesday, uh, most of you guys that were here know, uh, Gloria Moreno was a part of our church for years. Passed away. And then on Friday, I got the news that Tim White, one of our congregants' father, unexpectedly passed away cardiac arrest. So within a span of a little over a week, three deaths. I, uh, I shared with my wife that maybe it's a stage in life thing, you know. Uh, your pastor's getting up there in years. I say that with a with a wink. Uh, but we're entering the life stage where we actually have a lot of our friends whose parents are passing away. Some of my friends, my peers, actually, as I near my 
50s, passed away. We just commented, Jenny and I, we've just experienced a lot of death and loss recently. And you know what I'm realizing? I'm realizing I don't grieve well. I, I, don't, I don't grieve well. Uh, I'll get into what that means, but I, I, I don't grieve I don't grieve well. I, I tell you why that's important. It's important because many of you know I've been on this journey of emotionally healthy spirituality and I pre- preached on this one for, the, for 12 weeks and we talked about how spiritual immaturity is impossible apart from emotional maturity, emotional health and how they're intertwined and emotional health or being emotionally mature which is being self-aware and being able to love well is intimately tied to someone's spiritual growth. And I'm realizing, you guys, that the ability to love well, the ability to love well is intimately tied to our ability to grieve well. The ability to love well is tied to our ability to grieve well. That means if you don't know how to grieve well or grieve, period, you'll never be able to love well. See, grieving well, I believe in Scripture teaches, it enlarges our soul. I'm going to use that word over and over again. It enlarges our soul. It enlarges our soul, and it enlarges our capacity to love well. Frankly, I think Scripture says that it is the pathway that God makes us more compassionate and to love like Jesus. The following is not going to shock you, but here's the reason why. We, maybe you are someone sitting there going, I could have slept home. I could have slept, you know, slept in and stayed home because I, I know how to grieve well. I'll tell you why I, many of us don't grieve well. Number one, our culture. Our culture doesn't know how to grieve well. Our culture trivializes tragedy and loss. 24-7, you and I are bombarded with images and news of death, tragedy, earthquakes, crimes, wars, and famines. And in the news, they're analyzed and reported, but there's no lamenting. There's no grieving. Capacity to grieve and lament is almost lost in our culture. So you know what we do? You know what many of us do? We numb our pain. We numb it and we medicate it. You do it through overworking. You do it through TV. You do it through mindless video games. You do it through sexual escapades. You do it through relationships. You do it through drinking. You do, we do anything and everything just to numb the pain, to medicate the pain of life. And I just want to say this morning, and this is going to be one of those Sundays, how long are you going to, how long are you going to medicate that? How long are you going to deny that? How long are you going to minimize that? How long? Then there's the fact that I grew up in a family where I never saw my parents cry. Ever. Only time I saw my mom cry was at the death of her father. And the only time I saw my dad cry was at the death of his mother. And they were 40 years ago. I never saw good examples of how to grieve losses and death well. All I saw was people ignoring it, minimizing it. I talk about it. And then there's the fact that the church I grew up in didn't help either. <laughs> they loved using Romans 8.28 as like the cure-all. 
You know what I mean? Like death, tragedy, loss. God works for the good of all those who believe. Yeah, it's true. And I believe it. But you know what it did? It made it never safe for me to doubt, to question. Because I felt unspiritual. Felt like I wasn't taking the Bible seriously. And the best Christians around me were people who were stoic, who were tough, who no matter what life threw at them could just. And what do you do with this? What do you do with this? What do you do with John eleven thirty five? What do you do with that? Don't gloss over those words. See, preachers like me love getting up here because the context is Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And we love talking about Jesus is God. He overcomes death and brings resurrection life. All those are true. And I will preach on it this Easter, FYI. But you know what those words also remind me? They also remind me that Jesus was fully God, but he was also fully man. And Jesus in full humanity, come on now, experienced the depth of his grief and his loss over his friend. And you see a man, you see a man who is openly weeping and grieving. Isolated incident? You don't know your Bibles then, because there's Mark 3, 5. He looked around and them with anger and grieved at their hardness of heart. Luke 19, 41, but he, just Jesus, came closer to Jerusalem and saw the city ahead, and he began to weave. The gospel writers are constantly painting a portrait of Jesus who is not only in tune with emotions and who he is, but he is unafraid to express it openly and honestly. Emotions that would make you and me uncomfortable, like anger and grief and sadness. Here's Jesus going, come on. See, the thing is, um, by the way, it's going to be one of those Sundays. And y'all, just sit there and pray for me because I, I need to get through this sermon twice today. And, and I am preaching to myself as well as I'm preaching to you. And this is going to be a heavy Sunday for many of us. See, the church in the West has traditionally been word-centered. And look, look, word-centered. Like, we take the Bible serious. I love that. I love that. I love the fact that we are word-centered. Frank, Frank, we have, we have the red-letter edition Bibles. <laughs> we, we love the words of Jesus, and I love that. And by the way, let me be clear. We need to take the words of Jesus more seriously, not less. We need to take the words of Jesus more seriously. On top of that, though, we need to pay attention to how he lived. When's the last time you read the Gospels? Paying attention to how he lived. And the way Jesus lived over and over and over again is someone who is a perfect embodiment, by the way, of what it means to be fully human. We see in Jesus paying attention his emotions and expressing it without hesitation. 
If you are here today and you are denying or minimizing or medicating your pain, your losses, and feelings year after year, I'm going to say this right here, you're going to miss out on the transformational work that God wants to do in you. If you are because you're afraid of raw emotion, if you're afraid of genuinely being in tune with what God has rightfully created you to be in tune with your emotions, you are going to miss out on the transformational work that God wants to do in you. The first step towards, we say this all the time in our church, towards transformation and change is rigorous honesty. Rigorous honesty. Because painful honesty is better than uncomfortable avoidance every time. Painful honesty is better than comfortable avoidance every time. Painful honesty is better than comfortable avoidance every time. You can't be in denial about where you are, how you're feeling, and experience life transformation. And for many of us, it will begin here. It will begin here. January 21st, 2018. It begins with us being rigorously honest about this is where I am. And how I'm feeling. Do you want to mature? Do you want to grow? Do you want to live as your true self, the person that God created you to be, someone who's secure, someone who understands God's unconditional love for you, someone who is trusting and confident? That means that you and I might go on this journey of grieving our losses well instead of avoiding them, paying attention to our emotions instead of distracting ourselves through all kinds of junk, And it means learning how to embrace all of life, all of life, death as well as life. The joys and the sorrows as well as the old and the new. Church, are you with me this morning? Are you with me this morning? Jonathan Edwards said that the story of Job is the story of all of us. And, you know, normally if you're new to our church, the way I preach and I like to preach is I literally go verse by verse and I, I, I mine what God says and what it meant then and how it applies to us. Today's going to be a little bit different. Today's what I'll call a topical sermon where we're going to take a big chunk of text and then draw out some general broad principles looking at other passages. Job chapter 1, for those of you that are not familiar with this story of Job, we see this character named Job in the Bible and he's going to be kind of the central text where we'll draw a couple principles and then we'll take communion. Job chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the land of Uz, or Uz, we'll go with Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owed seven, owned 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen and 500 donkeys, and a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the peoples of the East. Verse 13. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby and the Sabians attacked and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword and I'm the only one who's escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, the fire of God fell from the sky and burned up the sheep and the servants and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. But while he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, the Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept on your camels and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword and I'm the only one who's escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the old this brother's house when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house it collapsed on them and they're dead and I 
am the only one who has escaped to tell you. If you don't know the story, Job eventually loses his health as sore boils cover his entire body. And then his marriage falls apart after 10 funerals of, his, of their children and the husband who's hopelessly ill, Mrs. Job, had had enough. Her recommendation to her husband is found in Job 2.9. Are you still holding on to your integrity? Why don't you just curse God and die? Few losses are as catastrophic as Job's. But here's the danger in that. Listen. The danger in that is we look at that and go, man, I haven't experienced that kind of, and we minimize or deny the losses in our lives. We look at this story, and the danger is fairly recognize that all of us experience loss in some form. But because our losses come more slowly in a less dramatic fashion over the course of our lives, we fall into the danger, church, of ignoring or minimizing the impact that losses have on us. But the lesser losses or these many deaths over the course of our lifetime, if they're not dealt with, they're grieved well have enormous impact on us. You go, what are you talking about real quickly? Let me tell you some of the losses that you and I experienced this past year. Some of us lost our dreams. Maybe it's the career that you dreamt about that never materialized. Maybe it's the marriage that you dreamt about that has yet to come to pass. Maybe it's the kids and the family that we dreamt about having that is yet to be. Some of us lost transitions and stability or or lost routines and stability and transitions. Some of us completely minimize, you guys, the impact of emotional, mental impact of various transitions in life. But every time we change jobs or you move to a new country or or, or move, there's a loss. Some of us became empty nesters this year. Anybody? Anybody? Others of us became caretakers of our aging parents this year. And then some of us welcome new additions. Thank you, Jesus. But all along with that meant death of routines. And life as we knew it. We also lost community. How many times have you said goodbye to people this year? You said goodbye to people who move away. It happens a lot. People you invest in and love. These are losses and they affect you and me. We said goodbye to staff, pastors that we love this year. That's a loss. And I thought about this. We left the building. We left the building. We worshiped in for eight, nine years, Seventh-day Adventist Church. Do you know what we did there? We baptized and dedicated babies. We baptized people who gave their life to Jesus. We married people there. We saw God do amazing things there. And it hit me like a ton of bricks. Eight years of God doing amazing things. Did we take time to grieve? We left the building. Hey, nine years. You see how we just. <sighs> Some of us, as you're lost, this image of God that we had. This is personal for you. Because before you came into your community, there was this image of God that you had, that you believed, you invested so much in, and you realized that the image of God that you have is not who God really is, that he's far more incomprehensible and more glorious than you thought he was. And you know what? That's not just an easy, oh, get over it. No, you're, and then some of us lost our ideal sense of community, or thought ideal sense of community. 
you came and you realized that church is full of flawed people. It's not the perfect place that you thought it was. People disappoint us. If you're ever in community, you experience this as a human. And yeah, for some of us, we experienced catastrophic loss this year. A family member died. Somebody committed suicide. Our spouse had an affair. We found ourselves single again after a painful divorce or breakup. We were diagnosed with cancer. Our company suddenly downsized and we found ourselves unemployed after 25 years of stable employment. Our child was born severely handicapped. And the list goes on and on and on. It is inevitable. It's the norm and not the exception. <laughs> and you know what I realize we also we do? Do you realize? See, what may be insignificant for you is catastrophic for me. We're all different. We're all different. Temperaments, personality, our culture, our family, we're, we're all different. The important thing is not calculating that's catastrophic or that's The important thing is recognizing loss is a loss. And you haven't grieved that. You haven't even grieved that. You haven't. I haven't. And the scripture says, unless we deal honestly with our losses and disappointments and all their accompanying confusing emotions, we will not grow. And the choice is up to us on whether these deaths will be terminal that it will crush our spirit or life, or they will open us up to new possibility and depths of transformation in Christ. The choice really is up to you and to me on whether we will medicate, overwork, deny, minimize, ignore, not pay attention, and allow these losses to be terminal, or... We will lean in and allow these losses to create depths of transformation in Jesus. The choice is up to you. And whether you'll sit here this morning and go, he's talking about somebody else. Or whether you and I go, what does Job have to teach us? What does scripture have to teach us? about how to embrace grief and loss so enlarges our soul and doesn't crush us. You might be familiar with the five stages of grief made famous by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. Denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. Joel helps us, I think, with these four principles. And then after that, we'll take communion. First, how do you allow grief and loss to enlarge? By the way, can I just... Is this making sense to anybody? First step, journey towards allowing these incredible losses to enlarge your soul is pay attention. You cannot, I cannot grieve without paying attention to our anger and to our sadness. This means you have to to slow down. Look at me. Look at me. You have to slow down. You cannot pay attention if your life is constant hurry. 
You cannot pay attention to deep emotions of anger and sadness and loss if your schedule is packed and you have no space to think and to feel. You cannot grieve your losses well without paying attention. And if you do not pay attention, it will deaden your ability to love well. Something will die within us if we don't pay attention. And you know what else? We leak. We leak. And I'm just going to pick on Christians here for a second. Churches are filled with leaking Christians. Churches are filled with people who have not grieved their losses well. So we leak. We might be kind or nice on the outside. We never explode in anger, at least not in public. But we're sarcastic. We give the silent treatment. We talk behind your back. You know what else it does? You'll never be able to forgive someone unless you've allowed the pain of that loss to deeply, deeply, deeply felt. There's some of you in here, do you know why you can't forgive that person? You have not allowed the anger and the sadness of what that person did and the loss to deeply be felt. Some of you have losses regards to your childhood. You haven't grieved that well. That's why you can't forgive your parents. I'm going to say it again. Some of you in here have never taken time to grieve the loss of your childhood. And so you are angry and resentment towards your parents. And you can never forgive them. Why? You have not grieved your childhood losses. You know what else it does? I've seen people commit reckless sin when they're not grieving well. They just want the pain to end. So I'm just going to... This sermon is not about somebody else. C.S. Lewis said that we as followers of Jesus come to God with what is in us, not what ought to be in us. See, sometimes the ought keep us from telling the truth about God. You know what else that does? It also keeps us from feeling the truth. Do you know what this means? That means God says, pay attention and come to God as you are. Job does that. Job does that. Job, Job is doing just that. He screams out in pain and he holds nothing back. Job literally curses the day of his birth. Job 3.3, may the day of my birth perish if only my anguish could be weighed and all the misery be placed on the scales. It would surely outweigh the sand of the seas. The arrows of the Almighty are in me. Job comes to God and he tells God exactly how he's feeling for 35 chapters. Job holds nothing back and he goes to God as he is with his loss, grief, and sadness. Two-thirds of the Psalms, the worship songs or books in the Bible, two-thirds are laments. We have an entire book in the Bible called Lamentations. Genesis 6.6 says God grieved at having created. 
over and over again, the scripture says, come as you are. Come with all of your accompanying anger and fury and sadness. Grieving well is indispensable to maturity. Real quick, application before I move on, real quick. Do you know what this means? Do you know what this means? Do you know what this means? This means that for some, many, most, all of us, this year, some point sooner than later, you need to go carve out a day, half a day, whatever, to literally sit back, think about, and journal moments of loss in your life. This past year, Last two years, last three years. Allow the accompanying emotions that will surface when you do that, because you've never done that, or it's been years since you've done that. Feel it and go to God with it. Take some time, sooner than later. Give yourself permission to feel. Slow down pace of your life. Create space because your losses are not something to just get over. Something that God wants to do in through you. Secondly, secondly, wait in the confusing in between. Wait in the confusing. One of the tragedies of the story of Job, so if you know the story, is that he had to listen to his three friends. Good God. <sighs> you ever have friends, when they're done talking to you, you feel worse Anybody, can I get an amen? Yeah, you feel worse than, than like before they actually came and talked to you. If you have friends like that, like you need to say goodbye to them this year. One of the tragedies of Job is that he had these three friends who apparently, and this is the important part, had God all figured out. And according to his friends, if you do bad things, then bad things will happen to you. If you do good things, then good things will happen to you. Conclusion, Job must have done some bad things. The problem is that that wasn't true. Job was an innocent sufferer. But his friends had no room, no room whatsoever for the confusing. And please pay attention for the next couple of minutes. They had no room in their minds, in their category, in their spiritual lives for what's called the confusing in-between, mystery. So they played God and they stood in God's shoes. Do you know what the in-between is? It's the Saturday between Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. The confusing in-between is the Saturday. You and I love Good Friday. We know exactly what happened. Yes, Lord, thank you, Jesus, very much. We know what happened Resurrection Sunday. The Saturday is the confusing in-between. Walter Brueggemann, one of my favorite Old Testament theologians, says that the book of Psalms could be categorized into three categories. There are, first of all, songs of orientation and then disorientation and reorientation. The first songs in the Psalms are orientation. These are seasons where we sense God's nearness and presence and we delight in his goodness. The second, though, are songs of disorientation. These are seasons of suffering and dislocation and pain when the bottom falls out and we wonder where God is. This is the confusing in-between when we often feel doubt and resentment and isolation and despair. And then the third, a reorientation where God breaks in and does something new. It's when joy breaks through despair. And Walter Brueggemann makes this incredible important point. He says these movements, first of all, will happen to everybody. 
everybody, every single one of us will go through experiences and seasons of orientation, disorientation, reorientation. And then he also makes the point that these movements will happen several times throughout our lives, not just once. But in order for us to learn to wait and in between, we have to learn to wait. Anybody else hate waiting? Anybody else hate waiting? I hate waiting, especially when things don't make sense, especially when things are confusing. I prefer control, you see, and that's also my relationship with God. I want to know exactly where God is going, what route he is taking, and when we're going to get there. I am like my son Noah. Dad, when are we going to get there? When are we going to get there? When are we going to get there, God? I'm tired of this in-between. It's Saturday. I don't know what you're doing. You're silent. You seem hidden. Where are you? So I could understand why Abraham decided to take matters into own hands. And after 11 years of waiting for the promised son, Abraham decides, I'm not going to wait for you, God. So Hagar, we're going to have a baby. And they give birth to Ishmael. And I got to be honest, birthing Ishmael's when we're tired of waiting on God. Birthing Ishmael's when we don't know what God is doing. Birthing Ishmael's when we don't want to wait in the confusing in-between. Temptation to birth Ishmael's is great. Is anybody out there who's given birth to Ishmael's because you got tired of waiting on God? I don't want to wait on God. I take matters in my own hands. That's why this Psalm of David is so profound and so powerful and frankly revolutionary in our culture and age. Psalm 37, 7, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Church, I want you to hear me. We think of waiting as a parenthesis. It's not. God was just as at work on Saturday as he was at work on Friday and Sunday. Waiting is not a parenthesis to life. This God was at work on Saturday. His silence was not his absence. His hiddenness was not his abandonment. Third, embrace the gift of limits. And I'll be quick with this because I preached a four or five week sermon series on gift of limits last year. But I think limits, limits is behind most of our losses. And you and I don't do well with limits because we live in a culture that rages against limits. We live in a culture where our value is dictated on productivity and how much we do. That is where our value comes from. But limits ultimately bring us back to reality. We have to realize we are not God. We can't do everything. God puts enormous limits around us, even the most gifted us. Why? To keep us humble, to keep us grounded. The word humility literally has its roots in Latin in the word hummus, which is of the earth. And some of you sitting here today, your grieving your losses are in the form of limits. You've come face to face with your limits. It usually comes in the form of failure, rejection, or burnout. You've come to the realization that you can't do it all, that you're not as capable as you thought yourself to be, that you can't help everybody, and that you can't solve every problem. 
And John models wonderfully, John the Baptist said, is for us what it means to embrace limits at the height of his popularity. And these following verses have become my life motto. When everybody wanted him to claim the throne of being the Messiah, listen to what John the Baptist says in John 1.28, you yourselves know how I plainly told you I am not the Messiah. Everybody, let's do say something together. Here we go. Ready? Ready? Here we go. Follow me. Repeat after me. I am not the Messiah. I am. No, like you mean it this time. Ready? I am not the Messiah. One more time. I am not the Messiah. When I was sitting in that chair in Bobby's house, everything in me wanted to get out of that chair, break my silence and solitude, and run to my friend. And I heard the voice of the Holy Spirit say, you are not. Messiah. You are not the Messiah. I got Bobby. I'm taking good care of him. He don't need you. Are you trying to be someone you're not? Why? Are you uncomfortable in your skin? Why do you refuse to embrace God-given limits in your life and rage against it? Why? Why? Probably for the same reasons I do. Lastly, let the old birth the new. Everybody, I'm almost done. This most last important point. <laughs> I don't know how we missed this. I, I don't know. I don't know how. I don't know how we missed this. And I could preach on this every Sunday, and I think we will miss it. Foundational to our faith. Foundational to our faith is there is no resurrection without death. There is no life without death first. There is no transformation, change, renewal without death. There is no such thing. Do you realize this is the cornerstone of our faith? There is no life without death first. <laughs> Jesus said it this way. John 12, 24, I tell you the truth. Unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. But its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. Jesus characterizes the Christian life as one of dying so that a new door could open to a radically new life. Death must come first. There is no enlarging of our souls without death, without loss. And if you're sitting there going, so I need to start praying for these deaths to come. Into you don't need to pray. They will inevitably come. It's the result of living in a fallen world among fallen people. By the way, there's not only just evil out there, there's evil in here too. It's the pathway Transformation from God is that's are going to come. And what are you going to do about it, Peter? 
Will you trust me? Embrace it. And allow something new to birth, or will you medicate, deny, minimize, keep myself busy, keep myself occupied? I got. Job embraced his losses. And the story of Job ends with these words from Job. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. And then the following words, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. My ears had heard of you, but now my eye, Job, sees God, and he is transformed. Job wrestles honestly, grieves, mourns, and then he sees God and allows God Earth. In my years of experience as a pastor, see, come on up. If you're going, Peter, what does that look like? Here's what I've seen of what that looks like when there's new birth. You know what I've seen? I've seen people become more compassionate. is our Heavenly Father's compassionate. Henry Nouwen, my favorite author, one of my favorite authors, said, there's no compassion without many tears. There's no compassion without many tears. There's no compassion without many tears. To become like the Heavenly Father, whose only authority is compassion, I have to shed countless tears and so prepare my heart to receive anyone, whatever their journey has been, and forgive them from the heart. I've seen people being given birth to become more compassionate. You know what else I've seen? I've seen people finally come to a place of stopping saying, I need this and I need that. You know what's rebirth in, in folks who allow these mini deaths to come and embrace it? They finally realize all the things that the world runs after, it's not important. They finally come to realize all the stuff, success, fame, power, money, that's not, you know what else I've also seen happen? I've also seen people becoming okay with mystery. And I've seen people learning to say things like, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. And I'm okay with that. I've seen people become more vulnerable, more humble. I've seen people become kinder. They stop being less judgmental of folks and judging people based on looks, intelligence, wealth. I've seen people begin to live into their true selves when you allow death to give birth to the new. Do you know what happens? We emerge more confident of our true selves and you stop caring about what people think. Does anybody in here want to stop caring about what people think? I do. I do. I want to be someone who is free to live God's plans and purpose for my life because... of what I've allowed God to do in my life through grief and losses. To end, let me end with 
the following short three, four-sentence testimony of someone who allowed the old to birth the new. In retrospect, I can see in my own life what I could not see at the time. How the job that I lost helped me find work I needed to do. How the road closed sign turned me toward terrain I needed to travel. And how losses that felt irredeemable forced me to discern meanings I needed to know. See, Peter, on the surface, it seemed like life was lessening, but silently and lavishly, the seeds of a new life were always being sown. Silently and lavishly, the seeds of a new life were always being sown. So I put up the following question before you come up and take communion. What road close sign is before you? And maybe God's way of redirecting you something new. this morning is nearly not enough time for you to process and to think my prayer for you all this week has been that this morning will be the beginning point of you realizing that it is only through death that life can be found it is only through crucifixion we experience resurrection what losses are you sitting with today what many deaths or catastrophic deaths have you encountered this year and what would it mean for you and me to begin this journey honestly rigorously honestly all the accompanying confusing emotions and fears allowed God to do his healing work I know I need it and I need his promise and I know that he was betrayed he broke bread and he said this is my body broken for you whenever you break it do it in remembrance of me And then he took the cup, the cup of the new covenant, and he said, this is my body. This is my blood. Blood that's been shed and poured out for all sinful humanity so that we no longer approach the throne of grace by the blood of goats and rams and sheep. We approach the throne by the gracious gift and mercy of God. The blood of his son shed for us. is.